Hey everyone, this is Justin with Whitetail Theories Podcast. On the mic today, we have Austin Delano. What's up, Austin? Hey man, how's it going? Pretty good. You guys, uh, if you don't know who Austin is, uh, you might be more familiar with Food Plot Guru, uh, Masio Gamekeeper, um, you know, but definitely been wanting to get Austin on the mic for a little bit now and we reached out to him and we made it happen so Austin I really appreciate you jumping on man yeah man great to be here appreciate y'all asking me so Austin um for those that don't know you tell us a little bit about yourself uh you know with the podcast I always want the 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 listeners to get a sense of who you are as a person and 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 you know your life in the outdoor industry um, so how did you get started into hunting? I guess would be a good, good start to that. Yeah, man. So <clears throat> was born out West in New Mexico in the mountains and, um, lived there till I was about nine or 10. So spent a good deal of time, um, elk hunting with my dad and, um, you know, no, no short, no shortage of opportunities for, for wildlife out there. So, Started off, you know, getting to chase big game with my dad as a youngster and then uh, spent about six or seven years in the Arkansas Delta. Uh, we lived about 20 miles or so from Stuttgart. Um, everybody knows that's, you know, kind of the, the duck capital of the world. So uh, was really blessed, you know, as kind of a young teenager to um, live in a spot where, you know, in the early and mid nineties there, the, the duck hunt was just unbelievable. And you're in one of the best flyways there is. So I got really, really spoiled as a, as a youngster on, uh, <clears throat> waterfowl and whitetails there, um, in, in Arkansas, it was, it was pretty phenomenal and, uh, kind of got bit with the fishing bug then too. And then, uh, moved here to Florence, Alabama in the mid nineties and, uh, been here ever since. And, um, you know, finished school, ended up going to forestry school and, um, took a job right out of school, managing a, um, wildlife preserve where we, you know, guided hunts for, for deer and turkey and kind of, uh, you know, spent a lot of time trying to make that place better, uh, for wildlife. And that's, that's kind of where I got started and, and hooked in with, with Mossy Oak, uh, little over 15 years ago now, I guess it is. So, um, you know, so like I said, started off in forestry. I spent a lot of time, you know, when I was in high school and college working on farms, you know, in the ag field. And so that's always kind of been a, a big part of my background too. So yeah, just, um, I've always just been a, a diehard hunter, regardless of what season it was, and uh, just eat up with it. And now, you know, I spend most of my time taking my kids, taking my wife, or, or whoever else wants to go. And, you know, as we've talked about before, this is just kind of what you do and what you graduate towards when you get older is, uh, you know, help, helping other people get started and trying to share your passion about the outdoors and hunting. It's funny how like that timeline, like for most, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not one size fits all, but it's always funny that timeline of like, you know, you're younger, you get into it. I mean, you just straight drop bodies, you learn, you know, the ethics behind everything you, you know, you're, you're out there all the time. You know, when you're a kid, I remember getting off the school bus and, and running straight to my, you know, getting off at grandma's house and running straight behind her house and hunting. And, and then you kind of evolve to, like you said, where it's like, I get more enjoyment out of taking a loved one, 
you know, and I have a kid on the way, so I'm sure that'll be adding to it. But taking a loved one is, is almost like more, if not the same like type of feeling I got when I used to sit out there, you know, by myself. hundred percent. Um, so, you know, that kind of brings us kind of into the next, uh, question that I wanted to ask for, for those who don't know, what is the Mossy Oak Gamekeeper? So Gamekeepers is, you know, it kind of started off as the best I can remember going back 15 years ago. Now we started a magazine um, called Gamekeepers Farming for Wildlife. And, you know, we wanted we wanted to create a publication where guys could learn more about how to take care of their property, you know, how to make their piece of dirt better. Um, you know, we and from the start, we, we wanted to make sure that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you've got 20 acres behind your grandpa's house that you want to, you know, plant a food plot on or build a bass pond, or if, you know, you're managing 4,000 acres in, you know, Texas. We wanted to create a source of content for anybody out there that was trying to make a place better, um, you know, whether it be food plots, like I said, bass ponds, um, waterfowl impoundments, timber stand improvement, uh, you know, native habitat for upland birds. We wanted to be all inclusive for the outdoorsmen and, and we wanted, you know, hunting is kind of a, an ancillary benefit of everything we do, but we wanted to build a source of content that, that guys can read, even if they're non hunters, you know, they're, they're just somebody that wants to make a place better and leave a piece of dirt, you know, in a better place than it was when they found it. And so we started that magazine here 15, 16 years ago and, you know, we've got a TV show that's kind of tied into it. And, and this, it's kind of what it's all about. What we were just talking about. It's, it's about, you know, taking care of the ground, making a place better, giving back more than we take from a place and, you know, introducing other people to the outdoor lifestyle, not just hunting, but everything that we do that surrounds, you know, the outdoor culture. And um, that's, that's kind of what encompasses gamekeepers is, is it's, it's somebody that, you know, enjoys hunting, enjoys the outdoors and, you know, their passion for making something better out of, you know, a piece of ground that they have is, is their passion. That's awesome, man. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you kind of went into that a little more in depth because, you know, you saying it's a lot different than reading it on a website or, um, you know, on a Facebook post or something like that. And, um, you guys, it, it sounds like you're all over the country. So, yeah, yeah, it's been a, the magazine's been a, a labor of love, man. We we usually try to hit somewhere between 150 to 170 pages uh, quarterly uh, for each um, issue. And, you know, we I've been writing in it since day one. And, you know, going back to high school and college, I would have never thought I would be writing. Um, but it's something I was actually pretty good at. And so I got started writing for the magazine early on not because I've got any kind of bunch of letters behind my name, like a lot of the guys do that write for us that have got, you know, immense knowledge in certain areas. But, you know, I was more of the, the guy that spent a lot of time with his hands in the dirt and, and I can tell you how not to do something because I've done it the wrong way. And so, um, you know, let's, we try to have a little bit of everybody writing in that magazine for us and whether it's recipes on how to cook the turkey you just killed to, you know, a, timber stand improvement article by, you know, some of the forestry professors at the University of Georgia. I mean, we try to really get the best of the best for the guys that are writing in that magazine. And um, there's so much good content in it. 
And but that's what it just comes down to is getting guys to write for us that have a passion, you know, for the area of expertise that they have, not just that they get paid to do that for a living, but it's what they do because that's what they love. Man, that's that's awesome. That's uh that's definitely something I, I, I think I need to get into right there. Um where can where can our viewers get this get the magazine? Can they just get it off the website or? Yeah, you can go to uh, Gamekeepers. Um, just type in Mossy Oak Gamekeepers in Google or um, any of the Mossy Oak websites will have a link back to our Gamekeepers website where you can subscribe. There's several options there on subscriptions. And, um, you know, we've got it in a lot of places. It's in some Walmarts. It's in some Bass Pros, um, Barnes & Nobles, Tractor Supply. We've been able to get some uh, placements, you know, in some pretty big places. And uh, it's it's a really cool magazine. And, and we find that people hang on to the issues, you know, because it's like, man, when you, when you get an issue with all this good info in it, you don't want to get rid of it because you can't retain the amount of knowledge and information that's in them. So, you know, we run across guys that have just got stats things, you know, because they don't want to get rid of them. They're, they're almost minute. <laughs> You know, it's almost like a little miniature book every issue you get. And, you know, we try to have, you know, a list of things in every issue that somebody's going to latch on and like, okay, the rest of this may not apply to them, but, you know, they're going to see something in each issue that applies to them and something that they can use. Just a mini encyclopedia set of knowledge. No, I I definitely feel that. And I actually uh, know many people, like you said, that that keep the uh, subscription, especially the the magazines that they do that do pertain to them. Um, And then, as we know, you know, if if you told me I was going to be duck hunting at, you know, 30, then, you know, I would have been like, ah, maybe. But now it's like one of my favorite things to do. So, um, you yeah. know, you never know when you're going to change or evolve to in your hunting experience. No doubt. And we really try to make sure that the, I do a lot of the editing, you know, before it goes out and goes to the print. And we really try to make sure that what gets put down in there is is applicable and, and people can read it and know how to do it. You know, we're not trying to, write manuscripts or, you know, blow people away with the information they can't understand. We want the average guy because we are the average guy. We want the average guy to be able to pick it up and read something and be like, I know how to do this. I can go apply this, you know, knowledge to my 20 acres or my 2000 acres. Now, whatever, if it's nest predator trapping or, you know, putting structure in a bass pond for, you know, the crappie and bluegill and bass, whatever it might be, we want to make sure that the content is, is relevant and, and usable to the, the average hunter because, you know, we are the average hunter ourselves. We're not special. You know, I've always enjoyed uh, reading the articles uh, and going through it. My, my grandpa actually always has a copy at his house, um, you know, and I, that's why I wanted the viewers to know that, you know, hey, it's pretty easily accessible. It sounds like it's it's all over the place. So um, if you guys are out there and you're looking on specific knowledge, you know, obviously the internet's the best tool to get on there, and maybe you can see what what uh, uh, volume or what, how do you guys label it? Is it like volume or we do it? We do a spring, summer, fall, and winter issues. Oh, so quarterly. we time we time it up quarterly with the 
with the time of year and we really try as best we can it, it's not always perfect but as best we can to time up the content to the time of year that the reader will be getting it you know that way you know when he receives his winter issue in december you know he's got stuff in there that he can read about looking forward and going into spring that he can work on for his property and so, like I said, it's not always perfect, but we really try to make sure that the content is relevant to the time of year that a guy's going to be getting it and being able to read it and then go apply it to his property, you know, while it's kind of fresh on his mind and, and something that he just got excited about. Yeah. Plus, I mean, the the size of it and, you know, the way you structure it, like you said, it's it makes it so the everyday person can can get out there and, and apply it. So um, that's awesome, man. If you guys are looking, I'll definitely put the links in the show notes too to, to help everyone out so that they can get that knowledge. Um, but that kind of brings us into, you know, one of the big uh, topics of the podcast here, which is uh, food plots. So I know you have an interesting story behind how you got started in food plots, but um, would you mind telling our viewers also? Yeah, you know, there's several events, I guess I could kind of look back on to say that kind of got me hooked into planting food plots. But a, a lot of it was just that I've always been very interested in growing crops. Um, you know, when I was a young teenager, 13, 14 year old, and we lived in Arkansas at the time, my first job was putting uh, levee gates in rice fields. Um, that's just, you know, little bitty town. That's what you did. You wanted to go make some money when you're a teenager. You worked on a farm so i mean i stomped cotton wagons and worked on cotton pickers and um did all the things back then that 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 she had to do to try to to help a farm work and so i got really interested in just being around crop and so you know i got up you know in in forestry school and kind of got out of working on a farm every day but still still loved being around crops and watching them grow and so I, I got a lease that was in a, a part of the of the county we lived in that's primarily was at the time it's changed a little now but at the time it was heavily in cotton production you know always some corn and soybeans around but a lot of cotton production and wood just little bitty woodlots you know not a ton of habitat for for deer to live in there were deer there but the deer density itself was probably I would consider pretty low and you know some areas that what little woods were there had were pretty swampy and um, the deer there were just really unpredictable and um, we I said you know we ought to try to plant a food plot and just see if we can like get these deer in some sort of a pattern you know to come to an area instead of being so you know erratic in the way that they move between these these uh, these wood lots so we planted one and you know, did a lot of work to get it up and growing. Ended up, you know, getting like water wagons in there because it was a drought that fall. And long story short, we got a food plot growing, croaked, you know, killed some deer over it. And, you know, I kind of got hooked on it right then because we put so much work into that first food plot. And it, I would say it was successful because we did harvest some deer over it and they were definitely using it. Uh, so right then and there, I was like, man, this is, you know, it's pretty neat because you can change the way these deer move with a food source. And I can I can put this food source where I want the deer to be. And so it was sort of a perfect storm in in that where we put this little bitty food plot at. It totally changed the way you hunted that property and just allowed us to 
you know, hunt it from a certain wind and know that the deer were going to come from a certain area. And it really just kind of opened my eyes as an 18, 19 year old at the time that, you know, you can kind of manipulate the way the, the wildlife works on a piece of property, you know, by putting food in certain places. And I'd say that was probably one of the, one of the events that kind of got me hooked on growing food plots and um the amount of work that we put into that first one i thought heck i'll never work this hard to grow another one <laughs> you probably work 10 times harder now because you know what it produces that's right that's right <laughs> but that's awesome and i know you know i'd heard the story of um you know a buck you had you had saw at a young age and you know he had a lot of potential um so you kind of grew him and i think uh the neighbor ended up taking that one didn't he yeah, man, that was, you know, several years later, I was helping manage a piece of property and we, man, we were really put pouring a lot of time, energy and money into growing a lot of food plots and trying to really help out the deer herd there. And we were, we were making some significant headway and had a really big deer. Well, let me back up. I had a deer that showed up on camera right when we started getting good digital cameras that required a SD card. Um, because I started off when we still had film cameras that basically you had to keep them hooked up to a car battery to keep any kind of juice running through them. And um, we were just starting to get some, you know, pretty reliable digital trail cameras. And I got a picture of this young buck coming to a feeder, and I could tell 100% he was not a day over two years old, but he had a very unique and recognizable antler structure. Um, nothing crazy, but time length was above average mass was probably a little above average if i remember right maybe even already had a kicker or two bump started and i thought man that'll be a deer to watch and he was just really easy to keep up with um for the next you know couple of years and so i found his sheds as a three-year-old and i gave him you know like i figured him in the mid 120s which for northwest alabama is pretty stinking good and then uh you know, the next year he just, he really blew up and was spending a ton of time in two really big clover food plots that we had a, a, a one big three acre field and another was about two and a half and he just lived in them. And so he was super easy to keep up with. There's a four-year-old until the season rolled around. And then he just kind of did what older deer do and disappeared. Um, a couple of people saw him and I actually had a guy hunting the property that passed him up and i was like dude i mean you know we had talked about the deer and this guy was very successful bow hunter and has killed a lot of really nice deer and you know i'm going back 12 14 years ago i guess when this happened but um i'm still kind of amazed that he passed up such a high quality deer especially for the area um long story short on that is when it took me months and months of looking to find that deer sheds um, so as a four-year-old, I put him in the, in the mid one fifties as a, as a four-year-old, giving him you know, 18 spread or so. And, um, I mean, he was everything a bow hunter wants. He had mass, he had time length, he had character, um, nothing crazy, but just a really big, nice, big framey deer. And, um, so having somebody pass him up because they knew his potential, and that they also understood what we were after. It was like, I mean, yeah, we could have stacked a bunch of guys in hunting blinds and probably found a way to kill him. But right. it was just as much fun to watch that deer grow 
and watch him benefit from all the work that we were pouring into making this piece of property better. You know, not just food plots, but prescribed burning, you know, trying to supplemental feed in some spots and doing everything we could do to make the habitat better um, and more, you know, just better for the deer all, uh, you know, from a herd health standpoint. And so that next year that deer showed back up a little bit and ended up having the guy kill him uh, in December that year when they really started getting after the does down here. And uh, I think he, I think he was 174 and some change. And I know that's a big deer for really anywhere in the country, but for, for our part of the world, you know, that's a solid 50 inches bigger than the average mature buck around there will get to. Oh, now, for sure, for sure. You know, I'm not into inches game or a trophy hunter by any means, but it was, those inches were also kind of a measuring stick for all of us that were doing all this work in on this piece of property and, and others surrounding it that, look what it look what happens not every deer has got that capability uh we i fully understand that but that he wasn't the only big deer we grew you know we were seeing some really major changes in the in the total deer herd you know body weights on the does were way up fawn weights were up you know overall body weights on all of our bucks were up um, so it wasn't just that we grew this one big deer and it was some kind of anomaly he was kind of like the he was kind of the showpiece of what a piece of property could do when you really poured everything you had into making the place better and, and providing as much high-end nutrition for those those critters as possible. Oh, I mean, how can you not get addicted to that? I mean, when you see all reaping all the benefits of, of all that hard work, I mean, that's that's an undescribable feeling in, in anything, especially, you know, game management. You know, I, I hunt Florida, so I... I, I know exactly what you mean when you say, you know, kinda yeah. like you got to work with kind of quote unquote what you have, but you can get it to that next, you know, that next level um, or get it to its full potential, I guess would be a better way of saying it. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, the, you know, the way this particular piece of property lays and, and where it's at, I mean, it's, if, if you're familiar with what chert rock is, you know, we don't even, there's not even, we don't even have what we call dirt there. <laughs> We've got rocks. And, you know, it, it's really tough growing conditions. The, the soil is not unfertile, but it's really tough to work. It's very mountainous is not the word, but very high rocky ridge tops, very low bottoms, you know, lots of terrain features. Um, it's tough to hunt. It can be tough to grow crops there. So it was it wasn't just that, hey, we grew this buck on some, you know, awesome river bottom ground in Iowa. Oh, that's right. yeah. oh, oh, in Maryland, right, right along the coast. Yeah. <laughs> when the, the soil is like the most fertile, from what I hear, the, the soil is just the nutrition and the soil is just ridiculous. That, and that's it. That's where it comes from. So we, we did everything we could to, you know, make all our food plots produce as much forage as possible. And yes, that was, that was a big, uh, um, I don't want to say a feather in your cap because it makes it sound like we did it all the right way. And it was, it, it was a lot of trial and error that paid off at the end into growing a deer that ended up kind of being a, you know, a measuring stick of, of success on, Hey, here's, we, we did it. It wasn't any one person um, that did it, but it was a lot of people pouring in, you know, a lot of energy into making the place better. 
Now, do, did you guys, I know you, we could probably talk on this like the whole episode, but now you've done like peak my interest because, you know, I'm at that age and I'm 32. I'm getting to the point now where buying little properties, you know, like you said, I, I you know, I'm a big turkey hunter and I, and I want to do what I can for the population because I take out a lot of birds and I, I got to the point where, you know, you know, following Spring Legion and Pinoti Project and things where I'm like, man, I'm taking a lot of birds. I got to. I got to do something. Um, so I'm kind of getting to that game. But my question is, uh, did you guys have to like more so build it up or did you have to like kind of like erase what was already there, like remove rocks and, and all that? Or did you just kind of like build up on top of it? Yeah. So what we were really, you know, trying to do was expand the size of our food plots, you know, from being, you know, little half acre food plots to trying to get, you know, several two and three acre food plots so we were expanding the overall acreage so that we could grow more food um, to support the number of deer that were there um you know like i said we were doing timber stand improvement by thinning some of the pine plantations that were on there you know so we get sunlight coming into the ground because it's not just about the food plots they, they're a major part of helping these deer but you know, the deer are also going to spend a lot of time eating in, in other areas, you know, native browse and, and all that. So you're trying to also make a major impact on all your other habitats so that it's also helping you out. So we were, you know, thinning out pine plantations and doing prescribed fires through it. So we got, you know, sunlight hitting the ground in places that it hasn't in years and opening it up so that you get all this new, you know, early successional growth. It's got so many beneficial native grasses and native weeds that you know are our food um, they look like weeds to me and you but for an animal that spends its life at 48 inches and under that that's food and that's cover and so keeping older deer at home uh, you have to spend as much time i think providing cover and safety for them as you do the food you know the food can bring them in but if they're getting hunted too hard especially on a neighbor's property, you want, you want to be able to retain some other people's deer too, if they're bumping them and, and, you know, these older age class deer that we're always hunting, if, if, if they're looking for an escape route, uh, you kind of want to be able to have a place or two that on your property, that that's where they want to go to. And so that was, that, that was one thing we were also trying to do is not just increase the size of our food plots and the, you know, we were doing everything we could to, you know, soil sample, add the lime and the fertilizer that we in the right amounts that we needed to according to the samples and um, expand our bedding and, and cover acreage um, in these areas that were, they look, that's where some of the deer were bedding up already, but it was kind of because they didn't have another choice, if that makes sense. And so we were trying to create ideal habitat for them to lay up in and not just um, yeah, they're laying in the pines because that's more comfortable and, and feels a little safer than laying in open hardwood. So it was like we tried to look to see, okay, what ideally does a whitetail need in this part of the world to you know, survive? And it was like we just we need some thick, nasty um, areas that are full of native grasses and weeds so that it, we're trying to, you know, get as much out of that acreage as possible so if we've got 30 or 40 acres of pines over here that we can you know heavily heavily cut and turn all the open area into food and cover then we're maximizing 
you know, what that acreage is, is doing for us. You know, and that, I think that gives the the best explanation for like where you mentioned kind of like almost molding it to, to where you want it. Cause like down here in Florida this past year, we had a crazy acorn uh, just drop. I mean, just ridiculous. It was to the point where I was hunting a mature buck and I got close to him a few times. I've actually been on him the last couple of years. This will be the third year I've been chasing after him. And he, uh, he always eludes me, uh, but he, um, which is pretty much roll over and eat acorns, roll back over. He did, had no, he was forced to be in that cover because everything else was open. It was pressured. No one else wanted to go into that stuff, but it just so happened that there was some, you know, oak trees in there and he was able to have a good food source that he didn't have to go too far. Yeah. I tell you this is one of the heaviest acorn production years that I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and I've been walking through, you know, these hardwoods up in, in the northern part of Alabama now for a little over 25 years. And I've never seen the acorns fall like they did this year from, from all species, red oak species and white oaks. It was, it was unbelievable. Not just how many trees were producing, but every tree seemed like it produced just a bumper crop this year. And it, uh, I've got a, a lease we live right on the Alabama Tennessee line, basically. So I have a lease in Tennessee and um, it really made hunting tough this year because if you have a piece of property that is primarily, you know, hardwoods, mature hardwoods with, with acorn production, there's no rhyme or reason where they're going to be at. You know, there was, you know, one place was as good as another because, you know, our entire lease basically was, was food. Um, and so there was really hard to, pattern them this year compared to normal because uh, the food source was plentiful and it was very widespread so it was great for the deer because i think a lot of deer ended up living this year that probably yeah. wouldn't have a- i was just gonna say i was like uh i was like i'm just glad i'm not the only one because i know your level of expertise uh far surpasses mine so for, for you to say that i almost was like whoo like okay good it wasn't just me because I noticed that too. I went to Georgia twice this year and I've never seen acorns as big as what I saw then. And I went hunting this past weekend and was in the swamp and was sitting there just staring at the ground, you know, dazed off. And there's little mini acorns the size of my finger, my fingernail. Uh, I mean, they're still dropping. Like I've never even seen a, I mean, fully, I wouldn't say fully developed. I, you know, I don't know much about that, so I won't get into the realm of it, but they were literally fully formed, but the size of my thumbnail. And I was like, I've never seen this in my life. It was. And it, it, we, we heard that from customers uh, all over the place this year. It was, it was fairly widespread and it, it, it had to have been mostly just a, a perfect storm of, you know, the, the right years for those particular trees um, and, and the weather. And I don't know, what was going on with the moon and everything else, but it was a bumper bumper crop from, from coast to coast from what we've heard. You know, and that's great. Cause like you said, it's, it's literally think about how many deer survive that. And yeah, you know, you kind of get that it's bittersweet, but I found a shed the other day of a, a buck and he's on a piece of public land in Florida that, I mean, there's books out on it. It's, it's, I mean, it's run through pretty hard. And for me to see that antler, I was like for a Florida deer, I was like, wow, like it, it just gives you that glimmer of hope, you know, like, hey, you know, even though it's highly pressured, they still make it happen. And, and having all those acorns could have definitely been one of the main reasons why he was able to elude hunting camps and, and hunting camping trips and things like that. 
Oh, there's no doubt about it. You know, we, our lease is uh, right at 11 or 1200 acres there in Tennessee. And uh, there's just a handful of us that hunt it and none of us are up there to kill, you know, a two-year-old buck. We're, we're all just kind of, you know, get as much enjoyment out of watching them as anything. So we don't kill a lot of deer to begin with. Uh, this year, my 10-year-old shot a buck on a food plot right before Thanksgiving. And our typical four or five, you're lucky enough to kill one at six, four or six-year-old buck on the hoof is going to weigh 180 to 200. Um, you know, like I said, this is very steep terrain. Um, occasionally you'll get a deer that's right there at 200 and that, that that's a big body deer for us. And they don't get, you know, we'll have some river bottom deer in, in parts of Alabama that get heavier than that. But um, our deer really don't get much over 200. And my 10 year old killed one right there the week of Thanksgiving, came into a food plot. Um, we were having fun watching six long beards, which we were more fired up about than anything. And uh, a few does moved into the field and this buck shows up. He's nothing special from an antler standpoint. He's a, you know, just a basic eight point and, uh, you know, was definitely a mature buck though. When he stepped out, every deer cleared the field. Nobody wanted to stay in there. And I told my son, I said, he ain't gonna stay around long and that's an old deer and you need to, you need to kill him. So he shoots him. We ended up sitting there the rest of the evening, you know, trying to see if a doe would come back out to to get a, a few doe tags filled. And that deer ended up weighing 222 on the hoof. Good Lord. For <laughs> really, us, it's really big. I just about herniated my third disc trying to put him in the back oh, of the truck. I, I bet, man. See, I'm spoiled down here now. I make the deer backpack. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but deer down here, you'd be lucky to hit 100 pounds. So I make the deer backpack, and I'm, you know, I'm 250, 6'5". So, you know, to me, it's like carrying a, you know, my girlfriend on my back or a child. So <laughs> yeah, I couldn't imagine. I'm sure you did herniate something on that, on that it, thing, it dead weight. I'll yeah, I really wanted to weigh that deer on the hoof before he was gutted. So um, it was cool, though, because, you know, dressing him out, you know, I was able to show, you know, a bunch of my family ended up coming over to the house that night for a birthday party. And I was able to show some of the kids that were there, you know, number one, a couple of them have never gutted a deer themselves before. And so I was showing them a lot of stuff, but I was showing my boys just how much of a difference that a heavy acre production year means for that interior fat that those deer put on to survive a winter and so you know this deer was like i said late late november so our our cool weather hasn't even really got here by that time we've probably had a few frosts but it's it's still pretty mild and so the amount of fat that he had packed in around his loins and kidneys was was unbelievable i mean i was pulling it out by the fistfuls how, how, how old if you had a guess do you think he was it, it was probably a six to seven year old deer, which obviously do with him, you know, being that heavy too. Um, he, he was definitely older than most deer get, um, in that yeah. part of the world. Yeah, for sure, man. I, you know, like I said, I grew up up North. We'll, we'll consider Western Virginia more up North considering the States we're talking about. But, you know, I, I, I took for granted the size of what deer could be. And, and, you know, young, you know, there was, you know, two, three year old deer that would be big and, and being a big mature deer like that, you know, being, especially coming closer down to the South, 
you know, that's six, seven years old. You, you're some, he might have took him at the right time because uh, he might not have made it another year. Oh, it's without a doubt. And I think it was a really good combination of, you know, our neighbors cut a lot of timber last year. And um, so that the whole growing season, spring and summer last year, that, that area bordering us was, was giant, basically a giant natural food plot. With, you know, that first couple of years after a clear cut, when you have all that sunlight hitting the ground that it hasn't seen in years, you have all this new growth that just explodes out of the ground. And to, to our eyes, it just looks like a big mess. You know, it's just, you know, timber tops laying everywhere and just weeds and all kind of stuff growing. But, you know, for a whitetail, there's so much food out there and so much nutrition from, from native plants. And between that and, and food plots and then a heavy acorn production year, you know, that, like I said, that deer didn't have a rack to speak of. I mean, he was just a basic eight point that was, I would actually say kind of below average on, on the, on the antler structure, but, um, his body responded really well to a few years of good, good food. Cause he was, he was an absolute tank for, for our part of the country. And I've been blessed to travel and kill deer in other States. And, you know, I've been to Canada and killed deer up there and, and seen, you know, the, the extremes of deer between, you know, what's up there and what's like you're talking about down in Florida and, and how the, uh, you know, how the environment they live in shapes, you know, what, what kind of body they can support. So I tried to really impress upon my kids. Listen, you may hunt here the rest of your life and never kill another 220 pounds. <laughs> soak it in. Yeah. Soak it in for sure. And, and I mean, you got a decent amount of meat. I would take it off that buck, right? What's that? I mean, when you ended up working that deer up, you got a pretty decent chunk of meat right there. And his, his hindquarters were, monsters um it, it was like it was like uh quartering up a, a small horse you know for <laughs> you know, for the average doe we kill around here you know by the time you dress her out she's 80 or 90 pounds you know if, if that and um we're so used to killing so many of them and dressing them out every year for meat we just don't shoot a ton of bucks you know and yeah. so when you start dressing one out you're like there's literally twice the amount of meat on this deer that we're used <laughs> used to dressing one out so yeah it's it was a freezer filler no doubt oh i'm sure you know that's the first thing i thought of when you were like you know uh you know not being a trophy hunter but obviously maturing deer you know i, I completely understand that that balance but uh i was sitting there thinking as soon as you said he was big body with no antlers i was like well you can't eat the horns on that one but <laughs> being as old as he was you know it's probably a good thing that that he went yeah he made a lot you don't want to find a deadhead the next year or anything. You know? That's right. He made a rock pot roast and a lot of burgers. So. Yeah, plus, I mean, gosh, taking a mature buck. I mean, think about how much everyone learned, especially, and you got to do a family experience off of it. It wasn't just you by yourself in the woods. You know, no one got to see anything. No one really, you know, got to understand. I mean, that's a that's an old deer, you know. Oh, I'm sure you learned a lot. It was it was great um, from a couple of standpoints. Just what you mentioned. Number one, my other son was there. He, um, they both just had a birthday this week, so now they're eleven and fourteen. But they were you know ten and thirteen back in November, and so my thirteen year old uh, is is my diehard hunter. I mean, you give him a rifle, he's he's calling you on the phone to come pick something up dead. I mean, he is a killer, nice. and so he was sitting with us. And this particular food plot is really tough to get to because it's on the very top of a ridge. And 
it's really tough to get a tractor up there because it's so steep. And so we usually end up doing all the work up there with just a ranger. And you can really only hunt that field successfully with a southeast wind. If you go up there with any other wind, you know, you've, you're potentially blowing scent right to where the deer are going to come from. So we we really don't even hunt that field much because, you know, a lot of times if you're getting southeast wind in our part of the world, it's usually not good hunting conditions. You know, it's usually warm or, you know, stormy or something like that. So the particular day just kind of lined up good. The wind was out of the south and the, and the east and, and mostly east. And I was like, this is really going to be a good wind for that upper upper field. And the temperature was dropping. The barometric pressure was rising. All good combinations for a good evening. And it was the part of year where, you know, it's our youth season. So the world hadn't started hearing 30 rifle shots every day. Right. And that, so the deer are still relatively calm. And, um, you know, so that was kind of a good, perfect storm as well as, you know, some, some somewhat unpressured deer a solid food source and the right wind. And so even though my kids hear me say this all the time, because I'm, you know, I, I do this every day and they hear me talking to people, they were really able to see why you hunt a field with, with the wind in your favor, because you absolutely cannot fool, you know, these deer's nose and, you know, our deer down here, just they're on a different level when it comes to being wary of humans. And if you've never hunted, you know, like you were talking about Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia deer, mm-hmm. you know, they live on the edge yep. and it takes nothing in the woods to, to happen for them to clear a field. So you really have to stack any odds in your favor as possible. And when, you know, when the wind is right for a food plot, we go hunt it. You know, we, we really try to be protective of, of when we hunt those fields because, Otherwise, you're just you're just educating those deer and and not setting yourself up for success. Yeah, for sure. The southern deer. I know everyone says it about their state. It'll be one of those things you hear the rest of your life. But southern states, they they don't give it to you. I tell anyone when you take a a nice mature buck down here, I'm like, you be proud because that's one of those back in the day, right around the you know right around town with the tailgate down kind of situations just because you know they're it's so much work they're always on edge i tell people when they come down here turkey hunting with me i'm like if a stick falls out of the tree and breaks the wrong way near one of these birds or one of these deer they go their their whole patterns change for the week (laughs) 100 percent. and like i said i've been blessed to hunt other states you know illinois missouri uh kansas i've i've been able to hunt canada um tennessee mississippi alabama i've I've been able to hunt a lot of states and uh the, the southern deer are, are on a different level <laughs> they really are oh, i'm not going to brag and brag and say they're smarter than other deer yeah. but they're subspecies of deer and i have spent enough hours in the stand in, a, in enough places across the country that like you said killed them i sure any deer anywhere can be tough and when when they get four plus years old down here i don't care what's on top of their head uh or if it's a doe or a buck, if once they get four plus years old down here, you're hunting a, a pretty special animal and um, they can be really, really tough. And when you really start narrowing it down and hunting a specific one because of whatever it is, a story you have with that particular deer or the rack he's got on his head, then they really get tough because then all of a sudden you're dealing with a, a unique personality within that subset of, of it being an older age class deer and, and no two of them act the same. Hey, I mean, I feel like we can own that, man. I mean, being in the South, that's, 
I've hunted deer up north too, and and to me, I was in Ohio, and I we the place I was hunting it was more like an island. It was a river that went around it, and the deer were bedded there, and you you know we had them super patterned. But the excitement I get from a from a two three year old deer that I'll see down here, especially the one I'm after now, Hershey, to watch him grow, and he's got you know his antlers are solid black. Um, you know, I, I really can't wait to take them. I, I almost feel like, what am I going to do next after I do? But it's been a long journey. But uh, these Southern deer, man, they, they just, for me, and it sounds like for you, they just put you on a whole, whole different level. It's just, I don't know. that It's got to be because of how finicky they are and how quickly educated they are. And Yeah, finicky is a great word. Um, I'd say that's probably one thing that I've learned being able to hunt different places is, um, deer in the south and of course terrain and and there's so many variables you can throw into that whether you're hunting public ground or you know 2,000 acres that's highly managed and, and not very heavily hunted there's a ton of variables you can throw into that but you know across the board generally speaking um, the deer down here can be very finicky and even places that have very low hunting pressure and it's private ground the deer are not any easier to hunt. They may be a little bit more patternable or a little bit easier to figure out where they might be coming to a field, but man, they can be just when you think I've got this figured out, I know what I'm doing. Uh, they'll humble you one way or another. If you, uh, get cocky with them. <laughs> oh, for sure. And like, like you said, literally, like, I mean, obviously I have a, I have a lot of public land near my house. The the place I hunt is actually where the state record was killed in 1999. I live 15 minutes from it. Uh, just lucky enough to do that. So I always love that adventure, but I have, I firsthand know exactly what you're talking about. I've been on plenty of uh, leases and private land and at co-ops and they don't give it to you either. So there ain't no difference in a public land or a private land giving it to you. It's just basically those Southern deer, finicky, all, all around, just 100%. Um, so let's see here. Austin, I wanted to uh, ask you, what, what are you working on right now? Like, is there anything specific you're working on right now? Well, you know, we're, we're right here in the, in the middle of April. So, I do all of our product development for, for biologic, our seed brand. And so this time of year, we are building and still building spring products. Um, as we speak, I'm, I'm having our whistleback, which is a upland game bird blend that we put together every year, um, bagged up and, uh, our waterfowl blend is going to be put into production this, this week. And so we're trying to finish up uh, spring production on our biologic blends um, and, you know, really before long, we'll, we'll already be working on fall blends too for, you know, big stores that, that need, uh, need it put in earlier than other places. We'll, we'll already be buying and, you know, obtaining seed to, to get blended and bagged. And as with everything is right now, transportation and, and logistics is kind of a nightmare. So every day is a, every day is a new day when it comes to what kind of problems we may be facing on uh, transportation between getting seed out of a field and, and cleaned and tested and then sent to the uh, blender and bagger. And uh, so a lot of that going on right now, obviously we've got um, a lot of stuff going on with gamekeepers with uh, the TV show. And, you know, we're always looking for uh, new writers for our magazine content to put in there. So 
Uh, and then we've got, you know, customer emails that just pour in every day, uh, whether it be, you know, somebody with a soil test that they're wanting to get it explained to them or just general advice on what, when, where, and how to plant something. Uh, there's uh, always a lot going on. So with the, uh, with the riders, we, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we have close to around a thousand uh, field staff members with service side. And, you know, we've been around for about 12 years. So we've slowly vented and, and let people in and, and things like that, that are passionate, uh, pretty much like you said, with gamekeepers, just passionate with the outdoors, either want to learn, grow, give, whatever. And it, for them, my question is, uh, is the, like, as far as writers, is that something where they can just come to your website and apply or just reach out to you or. Yeah, man, we, uh, myself, Bobby Cole and, and Todd Amonrude. Um, Todd is our, is our main, uh, editor for the magazine and puts together our, uh, right list for each issue. And, you know, we try to get, um, we try to get a list going as soon as we finish one issue, we try to already have a list being built of writers for the next issue and the topic that they're going to write about so that we don't have anything that's redundant or that overlaps, you know, somebody else's um, net upcoming article. So it a doesn't take any of steam and headway that somebody's got building off of an article they're writing. And, and so that nothing's really, um, clashing together and having too much of the same in one issue. So um, if somebody was interested, I would definitely just tell them to reach out to, to Todd Amonrude, who is our um, main editor for Gamekeepers, and tell him who you are and, and what you do. And um, I guarantee you he'll be interested if you got something good to say. Okay, awesome, man. Yeah, I definitely wanted to put that out because I know we do have some writers and, you know, it's uh... – definitely something they'd probably be interested in and, and like you said i mean you know obviously right place right time kind of thing but you know i know people in case they got something in the works so uh we're kind of going on roughly about 50 minutes here i, I did have a couple more questions I, I wanted to bring in a little bit of turkey hunting since it is turkey season in most of the country um do you do anything specific as far as uh you know with helping the turkey population also i know you do a lot with whitetails but um i'm kind of curious about that yeah man you know turkey hunting mossy oak and you know the the brand and turkey hunting are kind of synonymous with one another and you, you know we really feel like anytime we're doing something for turkeys habitat wise you're really doing it for all your animals because they really everything benefits you know when you're when you're working a property and trying to do things to it, but there's definitely some things specific to um, protecting and increasing turkey numbers that, that we try to preach about and do. And, you know, we there's a pretty good trend in, in areas of the country where they've seen a pretty good decline in turkey numbers the last few years, not just in numbers harvested, but the numbers that people are seeing, you know, flock numbers have gone down and, um, and there's people that live in certain parts are like, dude, I wish you'd come get some of these turkeys. So it's kind of like deer in a way that, you know, some people have more than they want and some people are begging for more. So um, turkey are, to me are, are somewhat simple in what you can do for them as far as if you've already got some. Uh, it's, it's very proven that you can really increase a chance increase the chance of a turkey having a successful nest and raising those poults up to an age where they 
have a really good shot of making it to adulthood uh, by nest predator trapping. Um, I mean, it, it is the number one reason for nest failure is nest predators getting in those nests and eating most of, if not all of those eggs before they ever have a chance to hatch. And then we're talking about, you know, skunks, possums, armadillos, raccoons, um, you know, the list goes on, but most of them are those four-legged critters that's, that live in the night. You know, we like to say, I mean, they're, their job is having their nose in the leaf during the night looking for the next thing to eat. And so knocking back those nest predators and, and trapping them, which not a lot of people are doing anymore for a lot of reasons. Time, the furs are not worth what they used to be. And um, a lot of people just don't think they know how to do it. But nest predator trapping is fairly simple. And you can make an immediate impact on a piece of property on the number of turkeys that use it and survive and raise a nest on it by getting after those nest predators in the, in the late winter and early spring, depending on, you know, what your state's uh, regulations allow. But it's a, if, if a guy was wanting to do something better for his piece of property as far as turkey goes, that's, that's the number one thing I tell him to do. And it, I tell him to hit it hard. I mean, it, you can do it pretty cheaply, but, live traps you know coon cuffs however you want to trap them getting rid of those four-legged critters that that spend all night looking for a meal um, will make a major difference in the number of turkeys uh, that survive on a piece of property and, and then we get into food and just giving them some habitat you know to live in which we were talking prescribed burning you know having those areas that turkeys like to nest and and raise a brood in um, you know if you've got nothing but hardwoods you know, they probably are needing a place to nest. And so I, I've got 40 acres here behind my house that I bought. Oh, and I've been cutting some timber off of it and trying to make it a better little place to have just a couple of turkeys on. I've got 10 turkeys using it right now. And so last year there was two. And so I want to think that I'm having a little bit of success. We got about eight raccoons last year about half that many possums and several armadillos and a few skunks. And so every time I trap one of those, I'm thinking that's so many nests we're, we're surviving, you know, we're, we're saving. So uh, a little bit of the time we're trying to make that habitat better. And, and by cutting that timber and opening up some areas, you know, we're going to be letting it come back in natural regeneration, but we're, we're going to come in there and, and also treat those areas you know, with uh, selective herbicides so that it doesn't grow back up in low quality hardwoods and that it comes back in native grasses and weeds and, you know, all kind of good native habitat that turkey and fawns will, you know, thrive in a place that's heavy with cover, but also has some food value to it so that we're, we're providing food, but more than anything, we're providing safety for you know, those little bitty poults and the little bitty fawns when they're at that critical stage of, of growth. You know, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because, um, you know, that's something everyone can do. Uh, you know, a lot of the southern states, once our deer season goes out, you know, we have small game for that. You know, you know, and here in Florida, we have small game from like January until literally the week before turkey starts in the early March. So you get almost two months of strictly going after, you know, you can go after coons and and armadillos and possums and things like that so you know that's something everyone can do plus it's great to take the kids out if you have land you can trap like you said or get the coon cuffs um 
you know, it, it's it's uh, definitely a lot more positives coming from that, you know, also helping the turkey population. But, you know, I know that would be something fun that I'd want to take my kid during small game season, knock out some coons, knock out some armadillos. I see them all over the place. So um, that's even something for public land, uh, you know, to go out there. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all win with conservation. So no doubt. Yeah. And like you said, it, it's a killer activity for you know once deer season is over with but you still got a couple of you know a lot of several weeks of of cold weather and not a lot to do man getting out there and uh, that's the prime time you can catch these critters too they're hungry um so it's somewhat easier to trap them that time of year and you know getting kids involved and showing them how to trap i mean my dad showed me how to do it and i I got hooked with trapping at a really young age and I've, i've been a trapping junkie ever since so it, it somewhat comes natural to me, but, you know, I want, I want it, I want my kids to know how to do it and understand why we do it. And we're not just doing it to kill this critter, but we're, we're trying to find a reason to take him and, you know, put some use to it and, and show them, you know, what a difference it makes for, you know, the, the animals that we're trying to protect so that we can eat them and, you know, giving them better habitat because there's just, you know, and explaining to them that, we have this surplus of these critters now because nobody is trapping like they used to. Right, exactly. No, you know, I talk to people all the time when I have friends that are like, let's go hunting. I'm like, let's go during small game season. You know, we can get out there together. You can usually have a conversation. Um, you know, you can post up at a tree, you know, a few minutes before dark and, you know, raccoons will come out down here in Florida. They're out 24 seven. So you'll get them out in the daytime and things too in the swamp. So, um, you know, that's, that's great too, to pass down to the kids. Cause like you said, you, if you're taking something, so for example, you're taking turkeys away, you're not hunting the predators, the small predators, they continue to eat the eggs. You're taken away from the turkey population too. I mean, he don't have a chance. So you gotta, you're almost leveling out the playing field by if you, if you're dropping birds, you should make you a little rule that says, I got to get out there and drop some, uh, a few predators also. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, with with hunting being so popular, especially turkey hunting seems to be such a growing sport. Um, you know, it, I've really tried to preach to people the last few years. You know, if you're concerned about your your turkey numbers, then then you're going to have to want be the one that does something about it. Um, you know, I, I'm the same way. If I'm going to fuss about not having as many turkeys on my properties, I would like to see, then I've got to put you know my actions where my mouth is and go do something about it. You know, go trap some nest predators, go create some better habitat, go plant something specifically for them, you know, do something uh, instead of, you know, fussing about it. Let's let's find a solution and, and do what we know helps. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I think the best part about that, that huge takeaway is just like how much how much it helps. I mean, you know, and it's it's pretty, pretty simple and, and cheap and affordable to go do too. Um, you know, whether you go in public or, you know, have your own piece of property. Yeah. But. Great thing about it. It's not a, uh, it's not questionable about whether it helps or not. It's, um, it, I've, I've never, I used to have been writing management plans for people for a long time and, you know, trying to help them out with their property. Like I said, whether it's a little bitty piece or whether they've got, you know, seven sections that they're managing, trying to help them build a plan for their property. And, you know, I've never, I've never, mentioned you know turkey habitat and turkey management to somebody that put it into action that came back and said man that didn't work we still don't have any birds (laughs) you know if you've got a few to work with you've got to have some to start 
but if you've got a few there, I guarantee you, you can make it better and make them, you know, flourish if, if you put the, put the practices into work. Definitely makes sense. I got a buddy in Ohio and he was wondering why his turkey population was down and I was looking at his cameras and it looked like every party at night there was a, there was a big party of raccoons in front of the camera. You see six, eight of them at a time. Some of them so, so uh, relaxed that they were just sitting on their butts, you know, eating. <laughs> so it's... Oh man, they'll drive you crazy. They're just, I tell people all the time, they're little miniature bears. <laughs> you know, a little miniature bear eat anything and everything and they will get into everything, you know, trash. And one time I had a pallet, a whole pallet of seed wrapped up, plastic wrapped, tarps over it, a couple of empty pallets leaning up against it. And those stupid raccoons burrowed in there, got underneath the tarps, ripped the plastic and, and ripped a hole and chewed a hole in two sides of the corners. And so virtually they, they ripped a giant hole into over 20 bags on a pallet oh. and you know they probably ate what half a pound worth of seed Good. at bed you know <laughs> but they they found destroy an entire pallet of seed basically just because they're so curious and and stuff like that will drive you crazy about them so uh, i love seeing every one of them i can um matter of fact i keep a spartan camera behind my house and as soon as i see a raccoon show up back there at a, at a feeder or something like that we're trapping in the next day. <laughs> nice. Nice. That, that's awesome, man. I, uh, it kind of, kind of put a little fire under me to get out there. I keep seeing raccoons in a lot of areas that I turkey hunt. I need to, I need to get out there and do my part for sure. Uh, I've been slacking on it. Well, they, they're species that flourish with no, with no help, you know, and with nobody out there trapping them and, and setting their numbers back, then, you know, they're going to always be there for the most part. And, it's something you kind of have to stay after every year, but you can really, you know, set them back a good bit the first year or so and, and keep their numbers, you know, like I tell people, a lot of things, we're not trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to just get them, get their numbers down to a point where they're not making, we don't want our predators making our management decisions for us. Yeah. And so my, my lease in Tennessee right now, because our turkey numbers are down, you know, our season starts two weeks later this year than it generally does. And we went from a four bird limit to a two bird limit. And so I'm okay with that. I know TWRA has, has done their homework and, you know, they're trying to help out the numbers. And that's why they one way they can make a difference is by telling people, hey, take a few less birds and, you know, let's shorten the season up a little bit and let's see if we can get their numbers back to where people want to see them. Um, and that also tells me, hey, I need to maybe do some more on my part on that particular piece of property to, you know, take a few more nest predators and, and work a little harder on their habitat because they um they don't get there by accident. So we're going to have to do more, you know, on our end of it to to make sure that we've got more of them there. Yeah, I mean that that balancing act. I mean, you're taking away from something, and you got the turkey has two enemies and then some. So. Um, that's awesome, man. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm glad you, we kind of jumped down, down that rabbit hole because, uh, you know, that's probably one of the best pieces of advice I've heard with turkey management. Um, I don't hear it often. I have, I, obviously, I mean, I have heard it, um, here and there, but the way you described it, that was great. And I think the, the listeners are definitely going to take a lot from that. Um, 
But Austin, I guess my last question for you here is: This is a question I always love to ask everyone. How did your uh, how'd your hunting season go this year? I, I watched a couple of videos. I see you went to Kansas a couple of times, had a little redemption. Um, tell our listeners about your uh, hunting this this past hunting season, and we'll call her a close for today. Yeah, man, it was um, it was from a uh, meat and freezer filling standpoint. We we put plenty in the freezer. Um, a lot of a lot of opportunities here in Alabama and, and Southern Tennessee for uh, putting does in the freezers, and so we we always get plenty of opportunities with those. And you know, the food plots are just a killer place to be able to take kids. Um, you know, the only negative we ever really hear about food plots is, oh, that's just like baiting, and and I, I can't see it, it, anything opposite of that it's it's, uh, it's like baiting for uh generational upon generation upon generation of future wildlife yeah <laughs> like, i mean if that's if that's what you want to call baiting then yeah bait i bait too. yeah then consider me a baiter then but yeah for sure i mean you, you gotta look at the bigger picture you're you, like you said you guys aren't out there just dropping non-stop bodies i hunt a piece of property in uh maryland and the guy has some farms and i mean those deer absolutely destroy his place uh he loses so much money hundreds of thousands of dollars and we always go up there and everyone fills their freezer and it almost seems like we don't even put a dent in it but it's not like you guys are are doing that with these places you're you're literally you know helping the population you said the the fawn weights were up um you know your turkey population is up and like you said there's a lot of places that are saying come get my turkey but there's a lot of places that you know they are down to one bird limits our limit actually just went up by two birds this year but i mean i i see turkeys everywhere i go i can't go to the you know Publix down the street without seeing some turkeys in a field so yeah, yeah so overall our season was pretty good i, I personally didn't didn't kill a, a big deer this year now last year i did go to kansas and you know drew a muzzleloader tag and we went out there and it was super hot um, as it usually is in September and um, was able to go back, you know, uh, with Kansas, when you draw that muzzleloader tag, you can go back and use it in their firearm season, um, which is pretty short. You know, it's like 10 or 12 days, but um, it's nice that you still use that muzzleloader tag. Obviously, use your muzzleloader. Um, but, you know, by that time of year, their deer are kind of done chasing and they're more getting back to looking for food so when we went back in there early december it was you know getting pretty nasty cold and you know finding a deer out there that time of year that's not broken up can be pretty tough um you know they're they've done a lot of fighting and man i can't tell you how many deer we saw on the hoof and on trail cameras it was like you know main beams broke off and you know brow tines and g2s snapped off at the base and it's like man it's a war zone yeah like you know it's not that i'm scared to kill a deer that's got a broke antler but it's sometimes it can be a little bit harder to judge them too and know what that deer is and whether you need to pass him you know when, when he's all busted up like that so um we did you know, connect with a, with a good mature buck out there that, uh, on that muzzleloader hunt and, um, was able to bring one home. And I've eaten a lot of tag sandwiches over the years in, in, uh, hunting other States. So, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of bittersweet leaving there in September last year, you know, knowing we were still going to get to come back, but you're also like, man, I, we did pass up some, some nice deer, nothing yeah. I was mad, at, but, 
we also were hunting with a camera, which changes things, you know, and you, you have some opportunities sometimes to kill stuff that either the cameraman can't see it or so many times the light is not good anymore. And then that happened to us. And that's just part of hunting with a camera is that, you know, you're going to, you're really hunting with two guys and it's got to be good for both of them if you're trying to tell a story. And so we, we kind of ran into a situation up there in September where we, we could have killed a really nice deer, but we wouldn't have been able to capture it on film. And that really was the reason we were there. And so there was no sense in burning a tag just to say you shot something. No, no, for sure. Luckily, we were able to score one you know, later on that year um, in December and, and bring one home. So it, it was a good hunt. Had a lot of deer in the field and um, had to make a really long shot with a muzzleloader. That I've seen that. I wasn't comfortable with it, but I was – I, I was what, at, that was a shot when you said the yardage i had to go back because i, I thought it you said 80 at first and then you said 180 i was like yeah. <laughs> i was yeah. like wait let me let me go back and then i had to go back again because i was like i thought it was muzzle loader and then the, obviously i saw the smoke but you know when it's cold up north sometimes you know i, I feel like sometimes guns do smoke there's certain guns i've seen smoke so i was like wait a minute what <laughs> yeah you know we the next day after we you went back and found her deer. I, I went back over there where the deer was actually initially shot at, you know, from the stand and, and ranged back to the stand. And it turned out to be 198. And so it was, uh, it was a pretty good poke. And of course I had a, I had a misfire with the muzzleloader that day too, um, early on, um, checking it because of the weather, it was so nasty and so cold and rainy and it just not good conditions for a, for a muzzleloader. So, um, it was it was good to to make a shot. Oh, you um, got it done. You got it done. Yeah. I, that that's the thing. It did it did it almost make you? Did you kind of like punch your chest out a little bit? Like man, I shot, I shot it over two hundred yards. I couldn't imagine shooting that far with a muzzleloader. It um, I lost a lot of the steam I had built up when you had to sit in the hotel overnight going. To, I hope I hit that deer. You know? Oh yeah, but when you said you guys backed out, like I could just hear it in your voice, and I, I'm not sure how you guys shot it. If it was a recap after or whatever, but I could just hear like in your voice when you were like, "Yeah, we we kind of had to go back to the hotel, and it's the right thing to do." And I was kind of like in my head, I'm sitting there like that would have been the hardest thing for me to yeah, do. Yeah, but you you see and hear that on you know te television and hunting shows all the time, and. I've never personally had to do it with a firearm. It's like, usually when you shoot it, you know, you hit it, you either right. see it, but with the conditions we had, and it wasn't just the rain that had was falling. It had been raining and, you know, the fields were just an inch, two inches deep with water everywhere you walked. And so we knew there was going to be zero blood trail and yeah. you generally don't get a great blood trail with a muzzleloader sometimes anyway. And so with it being, the last five minutes a lot and pouring down rain and foggy. We, you know, my, my cameraman, Joe White has, has been at this a long time. He's an extremely um, well-versed whitetail hunter and, and knows what he's doing. And he's like, no, you know, you know what we got to do. We, we got to get out. So we, we uh, went and ate supper and, and acted like nothing happened. <laughs> went back to the hotel room. It, it was grinding him as much as it was grinding me. Oh, I bet you guys were just laying in bed staring at the ceiling with your eyes wide open. <laughs> and it's, it's not like we had shot 90 or something, but it was a really nice, you know, Kansas muzzleloader buck. And you've put all this time and money uh, into, you know, trying to get this deer killed. And then when it comes down to sitting there and having to wait, you know, like, man, I, 
almost, you know, the rain let up like at three or four o'clock that morning. And me and him both were just sat straight up like, you ready to go? Because <laughs> you're wanting to go find out where another what's going on. What time did you guys end up going out that morning after? You know, we pushed it until about seven o'clock. I was uh, going to say, I bet you it's like 3 a.m. <laughs> you ready? I really wanted to, but it was so foggy. Um, with the weather we had and um, you couldn't see it was pea soup out there you you couldn't see anything and we knew there wasn't going to be much of a blood trail to follow anyway so it was basically going to be a, a site hunting and just going back to the spot we knew he was shot at hoping we found a clue there and you know that's basically what we had done the night before we left we, we went to where he was shot at and you know I, I was pretty sure I saw some hair and at that point, I was like, dude, there's no sense pushing it because this could be a terrible shot. It could be a great shot. I have no idea at this point, but us walking in 30 minutes after we shot is, is I know, not the right thing to do at this point. So, you know, if, if we killed him, he should still be here in the morning. And if I missed him then or hit him bad, at least we'll be able to see what we're looking at. So yeah. no, I know everybody went in doubt back out, man. Yeah, yeah, it pays off because, you know, I spent 10 or 12 years guiding for whitetails and I've, I've seen just about every scenario possible when it comes to deer getting shot and, and recovered or not recovered. So um, I've got a lot of experience to, to play back in my own head of, of guys that I guided and, you know, things that happened over the years. And you learn a lot and it's, it's almost never a bad choice to back out if you're not confident with, with what happened. Well, too, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we always want to respect the animal and you never want to harm something or, or take a bad shot. But also the, the feeling you get from if you do push it too far and it does go too far and you can't get to it, you know, out totally outweighs you heading back to the hotel for a couple hours and, and thought, you know, your thought process is really the only thing, you know, going crazy and then able to get oh, yeah. there in the morning. That's but other than that, you know, this past year was good. We um, turkey is uh, obviously a big part of what we do. My wife is a diehard turkey hunter. Um, she likes it maybe as much as I do. Nice. So I've been the majority of my 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 hunting season now trying to get her a bird, and um, of course my thirteen year old now is pretty eat up with it. So we're trying to find him a bird every year. Last year ended up going to Michigan. Uh, to to a friend's place and, and he tagged his first long beard up there after a season down here of some really tough turkey hunting and, and rolling one and not getting him killed he was pretty pretty tore up so we uh you know our season coming out here and i was like man we don't have to go north if we're gonna find a bird so yeah. we went to a friend's place in michigan and had a couple of good close hunts there and then the last morning we were able to find one that wanted to play the game the right way and, and got him killed. So that was good. So this season we've started off with, I've killed one, um, in Alabama. And then, uh, we had a really good hunt yesterday. And one of those where we basically got to do everything, but pull the trigger. So, um, hopefully we've still got about two weeks, uh, two weeks left here in Bama and, um, then our season in Tennessee doesn't open until next week. So hopefully we're going to have at least a couple of unpressured, unhunted birds there to get after next week. 
Yeah, that is one good thing we have about going on in the south. Our season comes in early and stuff, and the birds get educated quick, but the northern states are just now starting. I think Virginia just opened last weekend. So, Yeah, that's always uh, one cool thing about turkeys is, you know, if you've got some time and, and can take off a couple of days here and there, it's always cool to, to go hunt another state and hunt some other terrain. I, I learned a lot last year going to that place in Michigan. It was kind of a swampy area, and not much ag around and heavy timber um and they had a that huge jake population which can really make you know hunting long beards tough because you know single and and a double long beards that are that are together um they don't do well when there's big populations of jakes because jakes just whip up on everybody um you know they're nobody when they're by themselves but they get five or six of them together and they'll fight a grizzly bear right and so <laughs> they can kind of make it tough when you've got a lot of jakes and, and just a handful of long beards, you know, so it, you're always thinking, well, the next year we should have a lot of huntable, you know, two and three year old birds. So um, it was pretty cool to go up there and just hunt some different woods and, and look at some different dirt. That's always, a, that's always a good experience. And, and that's one of the main reasons why chasing Turkey will always be my favorite. I think it's just the, I think it's that get up and go factor. You can grab a bag, you know, if you have a networking contact in another state, you know, you can borrow a shotgun. You can get up there on a Friday, get back home on a Sunday. You know, it's, you know, with whitetails, you got to put a, you know, for the most part, you got to put a good bit of work into it, especially when you're hunting mature whitetails. So um, I think that's the thrill that always gets me with the bird is that factor of meeting someone, like you said, in Michigan and going up there and they're like, hey, I got, you know, come take a bird. I'm overpopulated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, with whitetails, everything is so dependent on the wind and being in your favor. And, you know, I've said for years and I've actually saw somebody put it in print the other day that, you know, if a turkey could smell, I'm not sure how many of them we'd ever kill. Yep. I and, literally had that conversation today with somebody. Yeah. So, you know, last Sunday, uh, right before church, I went and got on a bird and, you know, I was sitting there looking at my watch like, man, I'm, I got to go here pretty quick. But this bird was hammering and doing the thing and turned out to be three long beers together. And um, I finally got one of them killed, you know, when they started acting right and, and worked my way a little closer. But basically, they stayed out of gun range, for, just out of gun range for two hours, you know. So uh, I was sitting there watching them strut. And, you know, my wind is just blowing right up my shoulder, right at him at, you know, 60, 70 yards. And I thought, man, if these birds, I'm not saying <laughs> can't smell but if they can it must not be very good yeah. don't care imagine? what could you imagine that we'd never kill them you'd never kill a bird it would and i think it would be so frustrating hunting them if they could because i've thought of so many situations where you'd have to move on a turkey right. well maybe the wind would be great at first and then it'd be terrible on the other side so it, it would really change the way you had to hunt them so i'm not sure how many of them would ever get killed or or that we would even bother hunting them if they could smell and you would only have a chance if it was like one by itself if you get two or three you're done especially if they're smelling yeah i mean it's hard to kill them let alone you know as good as their eyesight and their hearing is and if you throw in the combination of that being able to smell too, you'd be like, well, basically we're, we're just hunting another deer that lives in a tree. You know, it's funny how the world works out. It, it throws us a bone every once in a while, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Because they are certainly a, a blast to hunt. I, 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 I fell, you know, I fall more in love with turkey hunting every year. And like I've killed one this year and, and I'm satisfied. Oh, do I want yeah. to, yeah. do I want to kill 10 
Of course I do. But, you know, if I don't kill another one the rest of the season, I'm, I'm totally fine because I had a good hunt, killed one. I was by myself. It was a blast. And now I can spend some time taking other people. And, you know, you can have five turkey hunts that you just almost kill one. It can be aggravating, but sometimes you're still like, that was a blast. You know, it's sometimes with deer hunting, it's not always that way, but with turkeys, for some reason, if you have a good hunt, turkey responds to the call or, you know, you just don't quite get him in range, whatever ends up happening. Um, there's, it's almost always satisfying just being in the hunt and working a bird and sitting on the ground and, and just, you know, trying to play the game with them. It's, I think that's why turkey hunting so enjoyable to, to so many people. It's, it's a chess match and, you know, most of the time you're going to lose, but every once in a while, you know, all the people pull the trigger and you come home with a bird and, and that's kind of a bonus. No, no, for sure. You, you couldn't have said that any better. I was actually telling my girlfriend the other day, I was like, yeah, if I get this bird, we'll go ahead and call it a season. Uh, and she's like, really? Cause you know, it's all deer season. I would never say that. Uh, but yeah, she is like, she was like, wow, that's, that's different. But I went out that day and had three goblin in the roost. I, that's, for ha I mean, we're almost done with our season. So for that to be happening on, on a very pressured piece of public land, I was very surprised. And like you said, it was just so satisfying. Even though I didn't get to pull the trigger, I got the birds relatively close and I just couldn't compete with the hen. She was, she was a firecracker and she was not letting that Tom go anywhere. So, but, um, so Austin, I really appreciate your time, man. We're, we're working on about an hour and a half and I know you probably got some things you got to get to, but I just wanted to ask you what kind of as a wrap up, did you have anything you wanted to touch on or go over? Man, I could talk for hours. So I, I hate to say anything specific. Uh, I, I appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'll always be willing to jump on here with you. So um, I do quite a few of these and, and a few radio shows too. So anytime y'all are interested in having me on, or if you want to do something really specific on, you know, food plots and, and wildlife habitat, and, and that's kind of what I do. So no, appreciate you. Be, that'd be great, man. I'd, I'd love to get you back on. And, and like you said, I, we could, I could literally, sometimes I wish just running a podcast was my job. I could just sit here all day talking about the outdoors and hunting and fishing and all the rabbit holes we could go down, but we'll definitely make it, you know, all good things do come to an end, but we'll definitely make it, you know, where we can get you on for a little more specific and, you know, utilize your expertise and, you know, your so many years of experience and, and hunting all over the country. I mean, that's a, definitely an offer I'd love to take you up on. Sounds good, man. All right, man. Well, you guys are listening to Whitetail Theories podcast. We'll see you on the next one.